Ezekiel chapter 16 is where we still are, where we have been for some time. Um, And I want to begin by telling you that um, I had some trouble writing this sermon, but a good kind of trouble, and that is the trouble where I I just had too much to say and honestly had to to break it in half. Uh, And so already starting to kind of gather up some things for for next Sunday, so to speak. Uh, But if there are parts of it that seem a little bit discombobulated, that might be why, but I I think it's clear enough. Um, but this is gonna, I'm going to open up some reflections to you that we're going to start thinking about together that will then, uh, I think gonna, it's going to provoke some other questions. And so if you have the sense that I leave questions kind of on the cutting room floor today and, and unanswered, first of all, don't be afraid to let me know because we'll be coming back to the same text next Sunday, I promise, <laughs> uh, Lord willing. And um, so, so I, I want to begin to explore this text with you. Uh, today. And so uh, we'll go ahead and, and begin by reading it together. It'll be up on the screen. And we'll start in verse 44. We've been moving through Ezekiel chapter 16. And this, what's happening in Ezekiel 16 is, is the Lord is giving Ezekiel this, this parable, as it were, of, of his marriage relationship with the nation of Israel, who have now, so to speak, cheated on their husband, their Lord, and uh, therefore, the judgments of the covenant are coming upon them. And so he says, Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, Jerusalem, you, Israel, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed their husband and her children. You are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. And this was actually from earlier in chapter 16. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite, a reference to, the pagan, uh, reference to pagan idolatry. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways, that is Samaria and Sodom, and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, Your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they. You have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations you have committed. Bear your disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace. For you have made your sisters appear righteous. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. The title of the sermon is The Harlot Becomes a Proverb. That's from the start of uh, our passage this morning, where the Lord tells Jerusalem that people who use Proverbs and speak in Proverbs are going to use this one about you, like mother, like daughter, because you are imitating the ways of uh, your, your spiritual mother, so to speak. And there's a, a metaphor being used here. Now, don't get it confused, by the way. Just because God is their husband in the metaphor, it's not sort of proposing some weird relationship between the pagan nations and, and, and God. But the, the point is to say that they have something in common with the 
with, with, the, with the roots of pagan ancestry. But before we get there, I want to talk to you this morning about the main central aspect of this text, which is the accusation that we just heard about pride, that the sin of, the sin of Sodom was pride, and that, that we read also that Israel, you're even worse than they were. So I want us to, to take a few moments this morning to think about the sin of pride in particular. C.S. Lewis calls it the greatest sin out of all of the sins that you could commit. It's the most destructive and the most, um, kind of the most sneaky of sins. Because as soon as you think that, you, that you're okay spiritually, it's probably pride sneaking right in under the radar, right? So like as soon as you think you're not proud, that's probably pride. Okay? What, that, what pride is rooted in, and the reason why human beings in particular struggle with pride goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It goes back to the very first sin and the very first temptation. Perhaps you know it. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A lie against what God has said. For here's the reason. God's keeping stuff from you. God knows that when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the temptation. God's keeping stuff from you, and if you hear my voice, serpent's voice, instead of God's voice, and what God has said, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, sometimes in preaching, the direction this text is taken is to say, you know, that's our problem, is that we want to be like God. Let me critique that just a bit and say, no, the problem is Adam and Eve were already like God. Now, they weren't God, but they were created in His image, right? They had a lot in common with their Creator. He made them that way. They had, they had already received the blessing of being like God in the sense of being capable of, of in, in a small sense, of some of the things God Himself is capable of, love and, and mercy and, and grace and you know, all, all, these, all these things that God's capable of, He's made us capable of as well. The problem is that Adam and Eve already had what the serpent was offering. God had given Adam and Eve rule over creation right their relationship to creation was as rulers adam had named all the animals right thus signifying he was god's vice regent he had been given the authority to rule over creation as its steward almost like and 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 children in here if you don't know what i mean by steward and, and vice regent almost like like the best i could do is like god made adam and eve his babysitters to watch over all of creation that's the idea that they're supposed to take care of it the serpent was pretending to offer what god had already given them when god created man he created him to have dominion over the earth genesis chapter 1 god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, rulership over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, livestock over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God then, so he places man, God does, in the garden with this purpose to rule over it, right? The next text is that we read that Adam, God put Adam in the garden to do what? To work it and keep it. That Hebrew there, you could actually also translate serve and protect, to, to, to take it, to cultivate it, to protect it, to bring it to its potential, to rule over it in a very real sense, but as its steward, as its babysitter, not as its God 
or creator to do with it whatever he felt like. The serpent comes and says, you know, you've been given some pretty nice things, but I think God is holding out on you. You really don't have enough. You really don't see the whole picture. And if you listen to me, I'll open your eyes, right? Your eyes will be open. And you can really start getting around to this business of being godlike. And so Christians believe that the starting place of all sin is this desire to be God and to, to reach out and take a better good than God has given us, to bless ourselves more than God has. So you see, like all good lies, this lie from the serpent has a tiny bit of truth to it. The most seductive temptations always do. The strongest temptations have some whisper of goodness or good intention in them. That's what makes them so tempting. But I want us to focus this morning on pride and what it does to a people over a long period of time. Pride is a temptation, and it's also a traitor. That's going to be my next point, and then it's also a thief is my third. But pride is a traitor. I want to talk to you about that. That is what pride does is it makes you feel better about yourself while you slowly get worse spiritually. See, Israel thought they were better off than all of their enemies. And so that's why, to go to our text this morning, God tells them, He pulls back the veil on their foolishness. He says, look, everyone who uses the, or pro- Proverbs, who speaks in Proverbs, is going to speak one about you, like mother, like daughter. Okay, So you're the mother of your pagan ancestors uh, who loathe their husbands and their children, right? And then he compares them to Hittites and Amorites. Israel thought they were better off than their enemies, not vulnerable to the same temptations of idolatry. God says, your enemies are not only similar to you, I'm going to actually call them your family, your mothers and your sisters. Now, there's a difference here. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that in a moment. So you have this this language, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this about you, like mother, like daughter. In other words, Israel, Jerusalem, your sin has earned you quite the reputation. And when people see you or hear about you or think about you and see your rebellion and your idolatry, they will say, wow, I guess it's true that it's really hard to outrun the sins of your ancestors. And our flesh, my my flesh and your flesh resents this idea. Like mother, like daughter, like father, like son. Because we have all been tricked into believing that our life's mission is to be like the opposite of our parents. I guess I I shouldn't speak in such generality. That's not true of everyone. I just think it's true of a lot of of us. We have this idea that like, and it's it's pride. It's it's mom and dad did like everything wrong, so I'm just going to be so much better, Right? And it's, by the way, it's the plot of more than a few Disney movies. Like in Disney movies, parents are normally morons. And, you know, or, or they're just like, they're just old fashioned and really out of touch and boring. And so the life's mission is to just leave them in the dust. That's perhaps a different sermon about how Americans and Westerners seem hardwired to despise authority. But we, we very obediently obey the voices that tell us to listen to the self and the inner voice. Uh, and then sometimes you have Christians who take that self and that inner voice and we just call it Holy Spirit voice and then we get away with all sorts of stuff. Not all the time, but it does happen. Now I'm meddling. Ezekiel says here that Jerusalem's imitating her ancestors. Okay, here's what we read, verse 46. 
Your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. Younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. So this is a bit out of Israel's history, right? Samaria to the north and Sodom to the south. Both have reputations for different reasons. Samaria has the reputation because that's the ten tribes that split with David, right? Remember, all Israel are your tents. What share have we in, in the house of David? And so they, they leave, and what ends up developing in Samaria much quicker than in um, Judah um, is, is idolatry and sin. That's why, by the way, they get exiled first. Now, the interesting thing I want you to observe, though, is that with Samaria, it's like they might have in their history some kind of uh, connection to, to the true God, but they've sin re- since replaced God with idols, right? And I wonder, can anyone tell me, uh, the, the, the problem with idolatry is that it misunderstands what God is, right? It thinks that God is some kind of visible, like visual object that we can hold and, and worship. And can anyone tell me what is God? Right? Right? Oh. Thank you. Does anyone want to give me an abbreviated answer? <laughs> no? Right? God is a spirit. Yeah? And we believe then, we know and confess, that our God is a spirit and doesn't have flesh. In, the, in that sense, that, that God our Father doesn't have flesh. That's the miracle, by the way, of the incarnation, that God the Son comes down and takes on flesh. But Samaria's sin is that I was trying to get the children to do it, Neil. <laughs> Now you totally befuddled me. Uh, but uh, Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north, and then the younger sister Sodom, which needs no introduction, right? But I am going to briefly make you familiar with um, for why, why is the Lord invoking Sodom here, okay? The, the reason the Lord is invoking Sodom is because Sodom was like a cuss word almost. It was, in, in Israel's history, it was the way you talked about really, really bad and evil people. And that's when the more devastating blow comes in verse 47. The Lord says, not only did you walk in their ways, Samaria, Sodom, and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they. All right? So there's no way to more firmly insult an Israelite than to tell him they were worse than Sodom. It would be like if God addressed us, and said, America, you're worse than Nazi Germany. Like, to help you get handles on this, that's what it would be like. That's about as close as I can get to the sense of shock. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that God's people can be worse than the people that God destroyed? Well, because pride is a traitor. I told you that was my next point. Pride betrays you. It makes you think everything is okay only at the worst time when you could think that because everything's not okay. Later on in the passage, uh, same passage this morning, we read more of this same thing. Verse 52. If we jump down to verse 52, please. Bear your disgrace, because that's what they're not doing. They're lying to themselves and not thinking what they're doing is disgraceful. Bear your disgrace. You also, you've intervened on behalf of your sisters. As best I can tell, that's, um, that's like an insult. It's, it's irony. God's saying, you've been, you, like, um, imagine a older brother or older sister like sticking up for the for the little brother little sister like don't pick on them i'm going to jump in between you and them and say you know if you're going to pick on somebody pick on me it's like that that's what you've done israel you've jumped in front of samaria and sodom and said no no i'm, I'm much worse if you're going to condemn somebody and judge somebody then start here 
because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. So be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you've made your sisters appear righteous. Pride props you up, and then it makes you fall. That's what pride does, okay? Pride makes you feel secure and really protected just before you come tumbling down. Many of you are probably familiar with this proverb, uh, proverb from Proverbs 16, 18, uh, which is, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, often summarized uh, right as, as pride goeth before the fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This is why it amazed me, it amazed me, when the so-called prophets who started their own churches by putting the word ministry after their name started making prophecies about how Trump was going to win, right? The second term. Here's my thing. Every Christian should have known that Trump wasn't going to win a second term. Because he was an extraordinarily, and remains an extraordinarily proud man. And we know what God does with proud men. He knocks them down. Right? Christians should have seen that coming, is my point. Christians just should have seen that coming because we know what our God says about pride. Because pride's a traitor. It makes you think you're okay, and then it knocks you down. So I would invite you to think on this today. Where, where is pride talking to you and reassuring you that you are okay? What is the thing right now that is allowing you to say in your heart, thank you, Lord, for not making me like those idiots? Right? As far as I can tell, right now, the central points of pride in our cultural moment have to do with like vaccines and masks, right? And, and pride of which team you're on and tribe you're in and all that stuff. And it makes me miss the good old days when Christians used to actually pick fights about their doctrine rather than slavishly obe- obeying whatever the media tells them to be mad about. But anyway, pride is a traitor. It's always going to betray you. That's what pride does. Brings you up and then lets you down. It's also a thief. Pride steals from you. We're told, interestingly enough, that Sodom's sin was a sin of excess. Look at this, verse 49. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now remember, the Lord is saying you were worse than this, but this is the baseline. Sodom and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Now that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Most of us, when we think of the guilt of Sodom or the sin of Sodom, would immediately say it is Sodomy, that is homosexuality, men and women refusing God's design of complementarity and instead pridefully pursuing a mirror image. Rather than being united to one not the same as me, I I will be united to one the same as me. And it's important for us to address this because... Just, just to let you know, there are advocates, uh, particularly for like homosexuality within traditional religion, who will take a verse like this and say, well, look at this. See, Sodom's sin was not about sexuality. It was about not feeding the poor. And look, yes, it was. <laughs> but keep reading. The very next verse says they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. That is, they were haughty and proud, did an abomination before me. That word abomination used about 20 times or so in the Old Testament only occurs twice in Leviticus. 
both times referring to homosexuality. Now, I will tell you that this question over the nature of the sin of Sodom is really important, so important that that's why I want to give two Sundays to this text. For now, what I want to do is investigate this text, the guilt of Sodom, and how we read that it was pride, excess food, and prosperous ease. If you're not familiar with the story, by the way, Sodom and, and Gomorrah, which they, by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah went together, both cities were destroyed, but it tends to be because Sodom was the bigger city that Sodom was a way of referring to both of them. My apologies to Pineville, how sometimes people say Alexandria, they mean the whole general area. It's kind of like that. The first time we hear about Sodom is in Genesis uh, 13, Genesis 13. We read about Abraham, right? Father Abraham, then called Abram. He was having an argument with his nephew, Lot. And interestingly, we read that they were fighting because they'd been given a lot of prosperous ease, okay? That they were arguing over it. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, gold. He journeyed on from the Negev, far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks, herds, tents, so they're both very wealthy. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Their possessions were so great, they couldn't dwell together. Okay? So they've got plenty to be proud of, plenty to be thankful for. Lot li- and so, so just to give you the intervening bit, Abram basically says, okay, here's the deal. You go and pick out the land that you want, and I'll take whatever you don't want. Let's stop fighting, and we'll figure this out. Right? We're family, so you take whatever chunk of land you want. I'll take the other chunk. So what does Lot do? Lot lifted up his eyes, saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like Eden, like the Garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Parenthetical. (laughs) This is before the whole land got absolutely rocked, right? Uh, This is before the whole land was reduced to a pile of ash. But Lot looks out and says, Man, I'm seeing a lot of prosperity here. This land looks good. And it was good. This land looks blessed. And it was blessed, like Eden, we read. Okay? So Lot looks at the land, and he sees abundance and blessing and riches and food and prosperity. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. And, uh, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. So Lot observes that this land is bursting with potential prosperity and food and comfort. Was that sinful? That the fact that the land was bursting with prosperity, was that sinful, church? Yes or no? No. God created that. It gets compared to Eden, for heaven's sake. So I want to stop here before we go further, because it's clear from verse 49 of our text today, Ezekiel 16, 49, that the sin of Sodom was pride, excess, uh, uh, excess of, of luxury, idleness, uh, different translations translate that word differently, uh, prosperous ease, they neglected the poor and needy, but the blessing itself was not the problem. It is a sin to abuse and to to take your security and comfort in your blessings. But the blessing itself is not a sin. I want to mention that briefly. Because I also want to tell you, it's a sin to despise your blessings. That's what the first part of Ezekiel chapter 16 was about. Do you remember? 
God says, I found you dying and bloody. I gave you life. I gave you food. I gave you clothes. I gave you abundance. I gave you everything you needed. God is good to give us gifts. And it was so painfully obvious. It should be so painfully obvious to you that he has abundantly blessed us, right? The simple fact that we have a glut of English translations of the Bible, right? More than we'll ever read. We are abundantly blessed. We have, we have uh, food warehouses. We don't call them food warehouses. That sounds a little weird. We call them grocery stores where you can go and get whatever you want, as much as you want. If all that blessing bothers you and you feel guilty about it, <laughs> on the one hand, I'd say, don't worry. It's the fruit of a Christian heritage, which seems to be slowly burning down. And so just wait a few more decades because it might dry up. But my point is, we're not called to be ashamed of blessing itself. Okay? There is an idea today that if God has given you gifts or blessings or privileges that others don't have, you should be ashamed of them. But God never calls us to be ashamed of blessing. At the same time, how do we understand the sin of Sodom? And what sort of repentance is called for when we read Ezekiel's words? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So we should hear from God and take it seriously and believe what it says. Okay? You, you might remember, we were told back in uh, Genesis 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked. Okay? They are great sinners against the Lord. And Ezekiel here tells us that their sin, their wickedness, that we already heard about back in Genesis, is this. She and her daughters had pride, access of food, prosperous ease, didn't aid the poor and needy. The pride of Sodom is that she was heavily and greatly and abundantly blessed by God. And she took all those blessings and used them as excuses to engage in sin. Human beings were created, as I started, I started the sermon here, we were created to take dignified and godly dominion over the earth. But when we take that to excess and pretend to be God, pride comes in like a thief and steals away our satisfaction and steals away our joy, steals away our, our, our delight with what God has given us. Excessive luxury and idleness fuel your pride. Does that, maybe that doesn't immediately make sense to you. Why would a whole bunch of luxury and comfort and ease and prosperity feed my pride? Well, because when hardly any worldly discomfort can touch you, you begin to feel like a god. Right? I, I can very simply just bring my will to pass, whatever that will is. And it, it feels like you're getting stuff. It feels like acquisition. That's the lie of it. Because in that moment, pride is robbing you blind. Robbing you of your joy and your contentment. That's the prosperous ease bit. By the way, some translations translate it prosper, uh, prosperous. Um, uh, the, the word means idleness, right? So, like boredom. So much, so much prosperity, so much stuff at your command, so much ease that this, this kind of boredom sets in. 
right? But you begin to feel very proud as well. Some of our most destructive sins, by the way, are the fruit of our pride and our boredom. Isolation, especially, and boredom make for a very dangerous kind of pride because it's a thief. It will start to steal your gratitude. Because you have so much, so why do you, I mean, what do you have to be thankful for? It steals your joy and your excitement. It steals your compassion and your love, but did not aid the poor and needy, right? They had so much, and because they had so much, they forgot what it was like to need. And if you forget what it feels like to need, you stop caring about the needy. So do you, do you see this, this, this way that, that all of our prosperity and ease can be its own threat? Now notice I said can be. The, the issue with Israel has always been that she's, uh, she's spiritually blind and spiritually forgetful. Basically, here's how it works. I'm going to show you something. Let me, let me check my time here. Yeah, yeah, we got time. All right. So Ephesians chapter 1. I want to walk you through this real quick. Basically, here's how it works. As Christians, we start off confessing that our God is good and generous, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He's blessed us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And then what does he do on top of that? He gives us his gifts, right? James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Our God is generous. Our God gives us gifts. From there, we've got two commandments of what to do with them, two, two charges given to us, you might say, and two temptations that accompany the gifts. Okay? So two temptations and two, uh, excuse me, two commandments and two temptations. Our first commandment or charge is to receive the gifts with gratitude. So this goes back to not despising our gifts, but receiving them with gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances, all circumstances, whatever God gives you, for this is the will of God. The will of God in Christ Jesus for you is that we would receive God's gifts and return our thanks, whatever the circumstances. Our second commandment is to share what God has given us with our neighbors. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? So God's blessed us, then it's to us to, to give thanks to Him and to share with our neighbors. So those are the two commandments we're given. What about the two temptations? The first one, I think it's really the big one, is that the more we have the more we think that we are responsible, that we get to, to say, we, we did it. We're responsible for what we have. Right? The more that, that God blesses with, the more tempted you are to start seeing what God has given you is like, well, I, this was my doing. I, I pulled this off. And honestly, this, this idea is so beautifully encapsulated in Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to take a moment and just, just read it to you. So God tells His people, the whole commandment I command you today, that you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, going into the promised land, right? Go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that, uh, that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you. Opposite of pride, right? Testing you. 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. How did He humble them? He humbled you and let you hunger. He let you experience need. That's how He humbled you, Israel. So that you would come to God as the ones who need, not as the ones who have it all. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. but Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his sons, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land. Oh, listen to this prosperity, will you? Brooks of water, Fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates, olive trees and honey. Sounds like a grocery store. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. Land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full. You shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land he's given you. There's the giving thanks. Take care, lest you forget that Yahweh, uh, lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God. This is... This is the sort of cycle that happens to us. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's he's telling them their story again that they forgot. Led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Fed you in the wilderness with manna your fathers did not know. That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power, the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember, Yahweh your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget Yahweh your God and go after the other gods and serve them and worship them, spoiler alert, they did. That's why we're reading about it in Ezekiel. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations... That Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. So our first sin then, with what God gives us, is to think that we did it. We pulled it off. Pride. The second sin, which also has its root in pride, but it looks a little different, is not, maybe we don't think we earned it by our own power, but we try to keep as much of it as we can, and we're terrified of losing it. That is, we tend to think we can hoard stuff. And if you think you can hoard stuff, read Ecclesiastes, right? It's all, you're going to die and it's all going to burn. It's basically Ecclesiastes about your stuff. But Jesus says something very interesting in Luke 12. He tells them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully prosperity. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. 
tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, okay, you talk to yourself too, right? So this is how the guy talks to himself. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What happens when we, we take all our stuff and hold on to it so tightly, it begins to crush us. It begins to burden us. Rather than feeding us, rather than helping us, we start collecting all these things and all the stuff, and it just starts to burden us and bury us, and it starts to distance us from people. That is admittedly a bit of a pastoral interpolation there. That's not obvious from Luke 12. But it does, your, your, your stuff and the way you protect your stuff and guard your stuff will hinder, I mean, hinder relationships. It'll hinder your hospitality. It'll hinder your, your peace, right? That's why Jesus says, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And so humility and gratitude and even just this, just the reality of, of having less to some extent is a weapon we can actually use in the fight against pride and idolatry. I mean, it made me think as I was putting this together, it made me think about this, um, what's the, uh, 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 minimalism, right? People trying to be minimalists and get rid of a bunch of stuff and, and kind of live with like five pieces of clothing or whatever. Uh, that, that, can be, that can be its own kind of pride. Um, a, a pride in like I can live in, in real austerity and the rest of you are, are idiots. But, but, but they're on to something. They're on to something about, about the way in which that kind of um, moderation at least can, can be liberating. What, what I'm trying to say is that in our war against pride, one of the things that threatens us is the way that our stuff makes, can make us proud or make us feel proud. And so, like, one of my sort of encouragements to you is just, like, maybe we don't call it minimalism, <laughs> and I won't, but it will just say, you know, it, it might be healthy to consider whether or not it's a good time to reduce the opportunities in your life to be lied to by your stuff, right? Because the more comforts you accumulate, the greater distance you have from, from difficulty. And the greater distance you have from difficulty, the less you hurt for those who are bound up in real difficulty. That's, the, ignored the, that's why I ignored the poor. That's the connection. When difficulty comes at you, when hardship comes at you, you will almost feel offended. Because all of your life otherwise is so comfortable, you know? Right? And so when like real hardship comes and real difficulty comes and real fear and anxiety comes, you're like, what is this? This is a great injustice. How dare difficulty and pain come into my house and into my room? I'm exempt from all that. Look at how lovely my house is. Ask yourself how much of the impatience and entitlement flows from your comfort. And even though it might sound crazy, there might be some spiritual value to being uncomfortable now and again. Right? And, and what, what I mean, like, so this is part of the reason why fasting is a Christian practice. And if you don't know, if you haven't heard, Shiloh Baptist Church has invited us to join them in the month of September, fasting on Wednesdays, okay? So what I've encouraged our folks to do is to start your fast Tuesday night, say, after supper, and then break your fast when you join us 
for, for Wednesday night supper. But if, if you've never fasted before and that sounds a bit too difficult to do, like for basically a whole day, I guess maybe 22, 23 hours, uh, you know, then, then just maybe skip lunch and spend time in prayer for, for our, our nation, for our state, for our, for our parish, for our church, for, for Shiloh as well and, and Pastor Franklin there. But, but the idea behind fasting is, is that we're actually killing or, or, or choking that, that entitlement that comes from just endless comfort. We are putting ourselves under discomfort to move in closer to, to what it's like to need, to what it's like to hurt, to what it's like to want. We bring that to the Lord and we say, This much, O God, help my soul to long for you and to want you. Because pride is really destructive and sometimes it takes that kind of weapon to fight it. Now you would hope, you would hope, I would hope, that the more prosperous a people becomes, the more humble they become, right? I mean, because you, you'll look around and you'll be like, man, I got so much stuff. This is great. I don't deserve it, but look at it all. Yes, and that, like, that's healthy. We, we should do that. The flesh, though, it just tends to be that unless you, unless you have a high intentionality there and you are really prayerfully looking around and, and, and saying that, Lord, this is all a mercy and a gift and keep me mindful of it. And unless you're saying that, pride is so sneaky. Prosperity tends to produce entitlement, which tends to produce carelessness about the poor and the needy. And so go to war with your entitlement wherever you can find it. If you haven't heard, my generation suffers from entitlement. Younger generation suffers from entitlement. They think they should get to have whatever they want. And any older person who tells them otherwise is just an old fool. However, the older generation also suffers from entitlement, believing they've earned the right to have everyone around them listening to everything they have to say all the time. If you don't believe me, just get on Facebook. The left tries to tell you that power comes through victimization. And if you're a victim, you should be bitter about it all the time, and that bitterness should never be questioned or corrected or healed. The right tries to tell you that power comes from self-actualization, and that if you just mustered up all the strength within you and built a better you, you'd finally be happy and have what you want. Both are rooted in pride. A lot of pride today is rooted in hating the right people, yeah? So if you hate the left or you hate the right, or you hate the rich, or you hate white people, or you hate Americans, or you hate uh, national enemies, or you hate uh, uh, this or that institution, that's where you find your righteousness. Or you can find your pride by knowing what the real truth is, right? Or you try to get a sense of righteousness by being a part of the right cause. Just as, as, a, as an as a side note, you might remember about a year ago, I think it was about a year ago, some of us gathered in here for this... Uh, it was like a simulcast conference on the persecuted church. It was really interesting. I mean, I learned a lot. Andrew Brunson was one of the one of the kind of panelists and participants in it. There were three guys who had all been imprisoned for their faith, suffered for their faith, like we might call uh, physical imprisonment and persecution. Learned a lot, and it was humbling. There was a lot to learn there. What I what I really appreciated, though, one of the things I really appreciated is that it wasn't. Okay, okay, all of you fake Christians in America, c- come and listen to us so we can finally, these are, we're the real Christians, right? Uh, and, and so, so uh, we we've, we've have, have fulfilled these stories, and so that means that the rest of you aren't real Christians and, and you need to, 
to listen to everything. You know, th- it wasn't about that. It was like it was just like our brothers coming and talking to us and sharing the goodness of Jesus in the midst of their trial, and how that goodness meets you right wherever you are right now. You see how you see how sneaky pride can be. Pride because you're the right sort of Christian. Maybe because you belong to the right sort of denomination, right? That's what's most important after all. (laughs) I have found the one true holy and apostolic denomination, and now that I am finally a part of the right group, I can take it easy and mock everybody else. That's pride. Or because you belong to no denomination at all. And let's be honest, that's what real Christians are all about, right? I'm not into traditions except for the well-worn American tradition that promotes anti-traditionalism and despises the old simply because it's old. That's pride. Or maybe just all-out anti-church, right? All these people in their man-made denominations and their man-made churches, I'm better than that. I'm in a church I built all by myself and it only has one member. (laughs) Me. (laughs) Pride. Point is, what does pride do? What kind of fruit does it bear? We know it. From Ezekiel. He tells us what kind of fruit pride bears, especially when it's accompanied by a sense of safety and prosperity. Pride plus prosperity results in distance from the poor and needy. So what I plead with you this morning, and I'm going to, I'm, this is, again, this is like the first part of, a, of something I'm trying to start and then, and then lead us into next Sunday as well, that pride plus prosperity results in distance from the poor and needy. So don't allow that distance to set in. Like one of the most obvious things about this text is in the name of Jesus, help the poor. Not, and notice I said help the poor, not get mad about poverty policies on the internet. Okay, that's not the same thing. Start with the people in your life that are closest to you, maybe your literal next door neighbors and that you know that there's a need. Start there and move out from there a little bit. And repent of the ways that the prosperity in your life enables your forgetfulness of your neighbor. Be wary of that. Right? Have a care for it, is what I'm saying. And instead, imitate Jesus, who owned everything. And what did he do? He became a servant. Right? Philippians 2. He became a servant for your sake. Is that one not... In Sorry, that's my, that's my mistake. I've got it here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only not only, excuse me, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and guarded and hoarded is the idea there. But emptied himself by doing what? Taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is what's then given to you and I. Is the, is the gospel of a Savior who moves in closer toward us. Who, though having everything, still moves in closer so that He might be the one who gives us, again, that Ephesians text, every spiritual blessing is yours in Him.
And so if, if, if that interests you at all, come back for more next Sunday. Yeah? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given us in the name of Jesus. But we also confess, Lord, that sometimes our gifts, sometimes we put our trust in our gifts, we put our hope and our safety and our security in our gifts, and we clutch them so tightly, and we look at them so with, with such focus that we begin to lose sight of our neighbors, to lose sight of the poor and needy. Oh Lord, have mercy on us and grant that our hearts would be driven more and more to serve those who need. Lord, remind us now that, that our gifts are not given solely for us, but for the good of others. That's what they're for. And so I pray that you would stir in us a holy and sanctified suspicion of our prosperity. A holy and sanctified suspicion of our prosperity. Not substituting one extreme for another as we are so wont to do. But that we would not listen to the temptations of mammon and possessions which again and again tempt us to trust them. That's what they do. And so, Lord... Help us to hear the voice of the one who is always trustworthy. The way, the truth, and the life. Indeed, our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Prepare our hearts for this. Now as we meet you at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.